0: Hello, welcome to Greenlit with me, the voice which belongs to Toby Earl. In each episode on Greenlit, a guest receives the thrilling news their life is to be made into a biopic, and we discuss how that story will be told. Will they star? Which moments won't make it into the adaptation? And will Dracula make an appearance? In this episode, journalist, author, and broadcaster, Hugo Rifkin, will plot the course of this certain blockbuster, Rifkind is an award-winning critic and columnist at The Times, the author of My Week, The Secret Diaries of Almost Everyone, a presenter on Times Radio, and he can tell the difference between a tangerine and a mandarin by touch alone. Hugo Rifkind,
1: welcome to Greenlit. Hello. Yeah, well done for, for figuring out that biographical detail about the tangerine and the mandarin. Yes, I mean, not a lot of people know that. I don't talk about it a lot. I mainly do it for charity. How did you first discover that, that talent? Was it as a child? Well, it, it was dark, and, and I was hungry, and in a room that only had tangerines and mangoes. And, um, and, uh, and I have a terrible tangerine allergy... So uh, so if, if I wasn't going to find a mandarin, I was, I was pretty fucked, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> I like being specifically allergic to one species of orange. Do you know what? I haven't, I haven't sort of delved into the whole world of citrus fruits. Perhaps perhaps something really, really terrible could happen with a kumquat. I just don't know.
0: I think, I think dreadful things happen with kumquats on a daily basis and no one addresses it. But yes, Hugo Rifkin, thank you for joining us on Greenlit. First up, is it pronounced biopic? or biopic
1: biopic no, no i mean it's always it's biography isn't it biology Oh, i mean biopic would be a, a specifically biological uh, mm-hmm. thing so like like david attenborough does biopics doesn't he oh see oh
0: so i see so you see, like instead of docu- nature documentaries you think biological picture you could call biological them bi- <laughs> Picture
1: sounds quite medical though doesn't it it does it also sounds
0: kind of early 20th century in his latest film, David Attenborough's <laughs>
1: biological pictures examines the lives of ants. If it's got something alive in it, then then almost everything is a biopic. You know, like like, <laughs> the, the, the Walking Dead, you know, just, just, just zombies. Zombies, that's not a biopic. Non-biopic. But then now we're onto sort of washing detergent, a non-biopic. A fairy on bio <laughs> <laughs> that would
0: be a really tricky one if you did if you did the the life of the person who invented fairy liquid <laughs> like, uh, that 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 opens the doors to so many interpretations so are we going with biopic,
1: biopic. or bio definitely biopic. biopic yeah
0: so just wondering hugo your life's gonna be made into a into into this film finally um yep. where does that meeting with the executives take place is it in an office is it in a restaurant is it at the studio where would you like to have that meeting where your bar pick is going to be discussed
1: that's interesting i see i i've had meetings in kind of studios and in restaurants and stuff and it never feels very me so <laughs> i think it would i'd like it to be on a on a bench on a dog walk that's nice. I think that's good. On my territory. Maybe I could yeah. take them into my local woods where they would be lost and frightened and they would need to, you know, they would, I'd need to get a good deal or else they were just never getting out, never getting out Wait. alive.
0: <laughs> where, I mean, where are you all? I mean, where do you live? Which <laughs> woods? What, are you near Hansel and Gretel's woods or something? Like
1: it's, what? It, I mean, it's only Queenswoods in, in, in Crouch End, but they're pretty spooky. Why are they so spooky? Actually, you know what? They're not spooky now. They were very spooky. There was that that glorious, I am going to say glorious slash terrible, tail end of the first lockdown period where basically everyone in the woods was about 15 and really stoned and that was like (laughs) kind of that was sort of quite exciting because you'd sort of stumble in a clearing and there'd be some kind of sort of rave going on or there'd be eight kids looking up guiltily from a bucket and you'd be like what are they doing with the bucket how do the kids take drugs these days um so it was quite scary then these days it's it's more calm and just sort of mums with dogs i guess it's the control freakery in me Right, it's making oh. sure making sure that this film is being made on my. I was going to say almost literally on my turf, although it's not. <laughs> it's not my woods, and you don't get turf and woods unless there's a lot of a lot of sunlight. But still, it, it shows that it's in my world rather than theirs. I would say.
0: So would you deliberately lose the studio executives in the woods to then rescue them, and they would then feel this kind of sense of gratitude to you, and and you know that the, they would feel compelled to listen to your every whim?
1: I mean, I could, but I'm mainly thinking that this sounds like a far better film than one about me. <laughs>
0: you know. <laughs> also, you said you had you've had meetings before at studios and in, in and at restaurants yes. for sort of projects of this nature yes. or or other projects, similar projects.
1: Why doesn't it feel like you? You said it doesn't feel like you. Why is that? Well, as you'll be able to tell from. My sort of proud and long history as a as a as a multi-billionaire Hollywood scriptwriter. These meetings have all gone <laughs> terribly well. So um no, I just always feel like uh, I mean, I even as a journalist, there's there's a lot of journalism that is sort of meeting up with people in in sort of swanky restaurants and interviewing them, and you know, going for sort of meetings in 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 sort of impressive places, and I. It's never been the bit of journalism I liked. Even when I was a diary columnist, where your whole life was meant to be going to parties and interviewing people, I'd do a, as little of that as possible. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very much a desk-based journalist when, I, when I'm not a Muddy Woods-based journalist. <laughs>
0: what, what, was it, what, was it, what is it about interviewing a, a restaurant table that you don't like? What does it take to do that, by the way? Because I, I imagine because it's an open public space, so it's, it's obviously not very private. Do people open up more or do they open up less?
1: It can be a bit of both you can sort of create your own little bubble where no one else exists and that's kind of great but you can also it can also be very sort of performy and sometimes you'll have somebody you have people obviously leaning it like from the next table trying to figure out what weird conversation is going on here and why one person's writing half of it down and um yeah so it's uh, it's not my mind it's not the most excruciating excruciating the most excruciating interview I've probably done was one of the first I did I interviewed Sarah Michelle Geller shortly after she stopped being Buffy Oh and, wow. And that was in a that was in a sort of a very, very, very small. No, actually, you know what? That's not the most excruciating. Second most excruciating. <laughs> that was in that was in a sort of hotel suite. And it was just, it was just kind of weird and uncomfortable. And we weren't quite And it was, and I'd done it, I'd been out and I had a really heavy night the night before. And I did just like just I don't know why I'm even telling you this, but I did the worst, worst, worst fart just before Buffy walked in. <laughs> and it was literally like wafting with the notepad type stuff. But no, the word the most excruciating interview I ever did, actually, was with Ricky Martin. Uh, oh, backstage wow. at CD UK, if you remember CD UK. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, and the dressing room at CD UK was very, very, very small. And Ricky Martin is very, very, very big. And so he was sitting on this bed and I was sitting on a sofa that was kind of on the opposite wall to the bed. But the room was so small that Ricky Martin had to, and Ricky Martin's so big, that he had to spread his legs as wide as they would go. So I could kind of sit in the triangle facing him between them. Well I, um, well, I held out my dictaphone and asked him about these rumours about his sexuality. And it was just not, it wasn't, it, it, it certainly wasn't my, my finest hour and a half. And I don't think it was his either. You uh, were in there for an hour and a half? I think so, yes. Yes, he said remarkable things. He started, talk, he started talking to me about, he, he pretended he'd been backpacking in India and no one had known it was him. And I was like, you're, you're fucking Ricky Martin. You know, you're, <laughs> you're seven foot tall and you're in India, nonsense. <laughs> I don't know, very strange. Yeah, I think I think I'd, I think I watched him before. I mean, this is a long time ago. I think I watched yeah. him perform, and then we were locked in. Co- and then I then I went into the closet with Ricky Martin. Um, yeah,
0: and and just just before we move on, and I and I promise you, we will move on just very quickly. Um, was the interview with Sarah Michelle Gellar involving a terrible fart of yours? Uh, was that was that a profile of Guffy uh, the Vampire <laughs> Slayer? Was that was that the angle? It was the it there. was
1: it was actually it was a, it was about the grudge, which I'm sure oh, yes. she still holds. But exciting news, exciting news, Hugo
0: Rifkind. Your life has been greenlit for a biopic, but how would your life be told by Hollywood or Bollywood or Nollywood? And what sort of creative control would you exercise in bringing the greatest story you know to the big screen? So it's a big first question, Hugo. What's the film called? What is the biopic of Hugo Rifkind called?
1: Right, well, the biopic, not biopic, the biopic of Hugo Rifkind, it's got punctuation in it, which I know isn't great. It's called yeah. I didn't write the headline though. <gasps> Comma between right. headline and though. I didn't write the headline though. Didn't write the headline. Though.
0: Now, this is a caveat. Yep. It's no doubt I'm assuming to do with your career as a
1: journalist. In part um, in part. It's very clever. Part- it has double meaning. Oh, it's very, It's. I mean, give me a double. Right, okay, well, so partly it, it is my Twitter bio and always has been. I didn't write the headline though because half of your life as a journalist, at least as a comment writer on, on Twitter, is people attacking you on the basis of a headline that is the one bit of the article you haven't written. And it's deeply annoying. It's particularly annoying <laughs> because often the headline is actually a quite accurate summary of what you've been saying that is much, much, much more honest than the words you actually chose to say to them deliberately because you didn't want to be honest because you weren't quite sure. And now it's there stark. <laughs> and, and <laughs> it, it can it, it can be very very undermining but so that's the that's the that's the sort of journalism aspect of it the other aspect of it without wanting to be too po-faced about it look writing writing generally is a process of storytelling right and that's why the headline thing is particularly annoying because you're like that's the bit of the story I didn't write and if, if you write about yourself that's a process of story writing about yourself and I'm not blind to the way that the headline of my story is always going to be the bit I didn't Right, because my, my, my father, was a, he was a cabinet minister. You know, he was a, a cabinet minister in Thatcher and Majors government. And a lot of the preconceptions people would have about me, quite rightly so, if they'd heard of me and had any, would be to do with with all that. And so, you know, long before I was a journalist, that's why people would have known my surname. And while well, I'm blessed by that in many, many ways, I didn't fucking write it. That's not my, <laughs> you know, that's not my bit. I mean, it, and, and as I said, there's a hypocrisy to it because of, often a headline does actually give a decent summary of what the article's about, much as you resent it. And really, there's not really anything more entirely typical that a politician's kid could end up doing than being a sort of streak of piss in the media. Nonetheless, <laughs> I didn't write the headline. Now, there
0: is there's a lot to there's a lot, as they say, to unpack, mm. right? In, in in that, and I and I love the double meaning. Let's start. Let's start for the, the what you mentioned about uh, your personal history. Yeah. I didn't write the headline. You mentioned about the preconceptions people might have of you had they had they heard about you.
1: What do those preconceptions tend to be? Ah, uh, mm, interesting. Accurate preconceptions about my background generally, quite posh, you know, public school, boarding school, all that kind of stuff. Inaccurate preconceptions about, I don't know, lifestyle. Well, I was going to say lifestyle generally, but not now. I'm a middle-aged man with two kids. My life, preconceptions about my lifestyle are probably entirely accurate. But as a, as a younger man, I was more, I uh, don't know, wild, messy, bohemian. So, you sound like a wanker calling yourself Bohemian, but I was quite. Um, and and my politics are not what people would expect my politics to be. Again, although you know, maybe they are because you're a bit of a cliche in the media as a sort of middle-aged man who's sort of pushing against them. So maybe they're exactly what people would expect them to be, <laughs> but they're not what I'd expect them to be. And that's the important thing.
0: You sounds like you're quite you you are and have been quite self-aware of your headline from for, for a long time. When did you become aware of that headline, those and those kind of preconceptions attached to you? Was it quite early on
1: in life? Oh God, always. I mean, always. Or at least more or less. Or, you know, my, my dad was an MP before I was born. And so my entire childhood was the MP's kid, which was weird in Edinburgh because there weren't many MP's kids. And there weren't <laughs> many and there weren't many people from the background in which anyone knew MPs or anyone who was really on the National, by which I mean the British national, not British national. You know what I mean? <laughs> on, the, on the UK national yes. uh, sort of stage. Stage just just wasn't wasn't normal. I remember, I remember my mum calling. I was on the way to Beavers with my friend Will. I was about to go to Beavers with my friend Will, and my mum called up his mum and said, "Said on the phone, look, someone might mention this at Beavers, but your your father's just gone into the cabinet." And I was like, "I have just no idea. I'm nine. I don't know what that means at all." But but <laughs> but sure enough, all the staff at Beavers mentioned it. And I was nine. I was like, okay. What really? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was the headline always.
0: When did you then start kind of becoming more aware? Then, obviously, I was nine. So then, did you? And he had it from that age. So then, when did you start becoming more aware of what that meant to people and what the kind of they thought of you because of that?
1: Oh, I think I was always aware. Like, so until I was until I was uh, how old? Thirteen. I went to the school in Edinburgh, George Watson's College which is a very big private school in Edinburgh. I think it's one of the, pro- the biggest private schools in Britain. And Edinburgh is a slightly weird place educationally because, well, Edinburgh is a weird place anyway. Edinburgh is a very kind of class, kind of, I knew his father kind of, kind of place. And when, right. everyone, and when everyone literally knows your father, that's, that, that kind of impresses itself quite heavily upon you. But it's particularly weird because a huge proportion, a relatively huge proportion of kids in Edinburgh go to private school. Like it's something right. insane, like a quarter. Just, really yes oh, just, wow. just i mean i think nationally it's God, nationally it's either three or seven percent but i think something- i was going to say that
0: sounds like an enormous outlier to it's the rest an, of an the enormous
1: out- it's an enormous outlier and it's because there's lots of um there's lots of assisted places schemes and all that kind of stuff but something like certainly well over 20 percent of kids in edinburgh at some point attend a private school so what, what it meant is that this school that i was at then was it was a very very broad demographic despite being a private school but it also, because it was Scotland in the nineteen eighties, it was not very Tory. Nowhere in Scotland was very Tory. Um, mm. and so it was it was kind of weird. I mean, then life was it was just a slightly weird, I mean, my, my poor mum at the time worked for the NHS in Scotland, where literally right. nobody was a Tory. When I was 13, I went to a, a boarding school, a public school. And um and I remember that holidays, the Christmas holidays afterwards, there was a whatever election it would have been, the ninety it can't be the ninety two election. Maybe it was a bit later, whatever, round about then. And um yeah. I, I wouldn't I'd been fifteen then whatever round about then and this kid I knew from my school ice skated up to me and said were you up last night watching the election and I said yes and he said I didn't think we'd win and I skated away and that was the first (laughs) time in my life anyone of approximately my age had expressed any sentiment about somebody being connected to the Conservative Party that wasn't that's just something fucking weird that your family do. (laughs) You know um, really i remember it very clearly that was it was the, the first time that had ever happened and that was that was that shift from the one kind of school to the other kind of school i mean
0: that must have been really really weird where that person ice skated up to you and you were in a bowling alley
1: <laughs> yeah all the all the posh kids in edinburgh used to go ice skating in the holidays weird thing i was so institutionalized by my previous and remain so institutionalized by my previous edinburgh i was life i was more like who the fuck are these people <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and no, I've never been sort of emotionally connected to the fortunes of the Conservative Party. Put it that way. <laughs> I do,
0: I do love, I do love the concept now. Obviously, in 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 the, in the biopic now, where you can have characters delivering narrative points on ice skates. They can just ice skate up to you. your your whoever plays you. will get to that. <laughs> yeah. Just suddenly, just suddenly. Oh, by the way,
1: you
0: no, know, like a, you know, like in there's something about Mary. You got like Jonathan Richmond playing the guitar and he's like singing singing in between <laughs> scenes. You just get people on ice skates coming up, going. By the way, this has happened. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like that. Um, But what's the opening scene of I didn't write the headline, though, Hugo? What is the opening scene?
1: You've got a kid. He's about, he'd have to be 15 or 16, I guess. Quite smallish and skinny, but 15 or 16. And he's on a bus in Edinburgh maroon bus in Edinburgh the buses were all maroon back then probably still are don't go there anymore don't know um and um, <laughs> that's a lie I'm going next week what the hell but anyway um I don't go very often I, don't, I haven't been on a bus in Edinburgh for ages who cares why even ask me <laughs> this? so it, there's this kid he's on a bus in Edinburgh maroon bus he's wearing a, a school uniform right bright red yep. blazer a very out of place school uniform for being on a bus in Edinburgh it's coming in from Musselburgh towards Dunningston which is which is where I lived and so there's this kid on the bus and he's carrying a bag and he doesn't look like anyone else on the bus because he's wearing this insane, posh school uniform. <laughs> and he gets off the bus and he walks down the road of this sort of line of line of houses, quite nice houses, sort of big stone houses in a sort of, you know, the sort of village you get inside a town. And he lets himself into this quite big house with his own key and he goes in and all the lights are off and he turns on the lights and he goes to the hall table and there's an envelope on the hall table and he opens it up and there's maybe... 40 quid in there and a note that says gone to China pizza in the fridge <laughs> that happened I don't know if it happened I think it more or less it my, my friends at school used to use that as the, the as the classic example of what my life was like so <laughs> whether it actually word for word happened I honestly couldn't say but it's it certainly it's thematically correct there's a higher truth there
0: uh, well, I, I, lo- I love the sense of distilling experience down into something as, as simple and as accessible as that. Like whether or not, like whether it's a half a memory or, or, or a slight embellishment, was that? Was it, is that how is that how childhood sometimes felt? That the pizza was in the fridge. Yeah, yeah, and- uh, that was
1: completely my teenage years. I had a, I've, I had, I have still. She's very well, an older sister, um, and she was only three or so years older than me. But when she went to university, so when I was in my mid late teens. And that was the point at which my dad, uh, he was in John Major's cabinet then, and he was traveling quite a lot. And my mom used to travel with him and they trusted, I was quite a good, I wasn't a very good kid. I was a superficially good kid and (laughs) and they trusted me quite a lot. So I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of freedom. I was the guy who always had an empty house. Um, (gasps) And so I spent a lot of time, a lot of time I'd get home from the holidays and no one would be there for a few days. And I'd have friends and stay over and we'd have, you know, there'd be parties and and, and all that kind of stuff. I and mean, I, I I don't want to make it sound neglected and miserable. It wasn't. It was fucking great, but it was very <laughs> much the defining feature of my teenage years. But you you say so you would come
0: home to you would come home to an empty house, so you have to fend for yourself a little bit, but you say so you threw parties.
1: Yeah, um, not like huge parties. I mean, one of the one of the preconceptions, the, the the misconceptions rather that people generally have about, I guess, public school life is that it's protected and sort of closeted I mean in in sort of in meaningful kind of economic ways of course it fucking is but in (laughs) in a kind of sort of daily experience way it pretty quickly isn't because you're away from your family by definition and you're often at school in a place that isn't where you live so an awful Hmm. lot of my friends would particularly by the time they sort of hit their mid-teens all the holidays would start with them having to get back to in Venice or wherever or some other bit of scotland which wasn't where they were so i yeah. i very often have people come and stay with me for the first few days of the holidays or if, if anyone was coming into edinburgh they didn't have anywhere to stay and they'd stay with me because i was guaranteed to have an empty house
0: so how did this inform you as like a, a host are you a good host have you have you did you refine your hosting skills skills at quite an early age if you had people
1: staying over i don't know if i was a good host i was um again it's a, was a very in a way that slightly appalls me now because i'm quite precious <laughs> about these things now but there was a there was an expectation that other people would treat your home and property as their own and you could do the same kind of thing. So I don't think there was really any hosting involved. It was just, yes, fine, come and sleep on the floor and we'll <laughs> what's in the fridge kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'd have been a, a, a great host at
0: all, no. Did you ever have a kind of Yellow Pages you might be able to save my life incident?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I can remember... No, I remember doors not being, I must be forgetting something. Something must have got broken badly. I I was quite, I was quite good at kind of controlling it all. Also the police watched my house quite a lot. So um, so, so so, uh, so nothing too bad was going to happen. I mean, that's yeah. a fairly major point. I have to know that no, that is a
0: fairly fairly major point. I mean, they would report a party quicker than those at number ten. It would it would seem or they would. They oh would yeah, I, I used
1: to get. It wasn't that common, but it wasn't uh, unknown for me to be. For, I'd be leaving my own house and a police car would pull up outside, pull up along, and decide me on the pavement and say, "What are you doing in there?" I would be like <laughs> I, I live in there, and they'd be like, "You don't look like you live in there." And it's like that's, you know, that's that's kind of um. I was uh, I was quite a scruffy kid. I was it was a era. I was quite a, 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 an on message grungy kid. Uh, were you and they did and I, I didn't look like i should have been coming out of the house that i'd just been in again did this is all stuff that is like entirely template predictable for someone with <laughs> my background yet feels like it's not when you're in it right well how did you so let me just guess
0: so was it was it were you wearing like charity shop cardigans we kind of that that, that that kind of big lay over
1: layered all that baggy ripped jeans kind of- undercut Probably some kind of some kind of hemp hoodie. Remember hemp hoodies? Hemp. Oh, with the with the, a pair of hemp laces. Oh man, no, it, it was the hoodies with the sort of triangular hood.
0: Yeah, you, okay. The,
1: that You pulled them up and you looked like you're in the clan. You know the, you know those ones. They were very, I mean, yeah, very I, fashionable. Yeah. No, no,
0: no, Hugo. I'm not. I'm not aware of them in no way <laughs> whatsoever. I'm not aware. I'm distancing myself. But like, so what did when, when a cop says to you, "You don't look like you belong" or "Don't look like you live in that house"? Like, what? Yeah. That's a that's a weird thing to hear, right? Because that's your reality being. Being denied.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it it never lasted that long. It was always like, well, I do, and it's fine. I mean, it was, but there was that when my dad was (laughs) when when he was in uh, when he was in the cabinet later on when he was defence secretary and then foreign secretary. There were like properties that he lived in in London, uh, and in fact, one and and a a stately home he had the use of when he wished to in Kent, uh, which was um, it's like the 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 foreign secretary uses, which of course was a long way away from me because I lived in Scotland and we didn't we didn't really go there, but sometimes we did. And they were mu- there was much more security in England. It was much more all very sort of official. And there was—I had a lot of kind of turning up in places, them going, "What do you want?" And I was like, "Well, it's my dad kind of lives here." But in fact, what? So there's this place, um, Chevening in, in Kent, which is the Foreign yeah. Secretary's—the the mansion the Foreign Secretary gets to use—which I went to two or three times, I guess. And I was—and this, this is later. This is when I was a student, and I had, to, I had dreadlocks as a student. And I, was, um, <laughs> and I went out for a walk. Of an evening, and I was smoking a fag behind the maze, Toby. Behind the <gasps> maze, and um, <laughs> and I was uh, and I was stopped by two roaming policemen with some machine guns, uh, who wondered who I was and how the hell I got in there. And again, it was <laughs> like, and you, you know, you explain yourself, and it's sort of fine. But um, but it was a a constant theme of of, uh, of maybe I shouldn't be here.
0: That's a kind of strange feeling to have, being in the sort of relative presence of your family,
1: that you're yeah. out of place somehow well I mean it is and it isn't because it's like um I mean everyone feels like that in life generally right I mean like okay you're gonna, it's I mean it's, it's almost like the whole point is like I know a lot of the experiences I had as a kid were mental but there's no reason why I shouldn't have known they were mental why wouldn't I have known they were mental you'd have known they were yeah. mental if it was you you know it's yeah. just it, it was mental you know it was like I mean I was a in many respects a sort of bog-standard middle-class kid in Edinburgh and then suddenly I'm sort of I mean, smoking a fag behind a behind a maze, you know, <laughs> in, next to a mansion, you know, that, that uh, Prince Charles used to live in. You know, <laughs> a, every bit of it was just you, you, you're constantly aware that it's very, very strange.
0: Before before we move on to the next question, I do must just ask finally about about being confronted by two guys with with submachine guns while you're smoking. Did you get like a wash of fear the moment they stepped out in front of
1: you? And did you did you drop no. the fag? Oh no, I definitely would have dropped the fag. But more just in case they told my dad that I'd been smoking. Um, no, it was more a kind of like oh this again. And yes, I can explain. <laughs> it almost wasn't even annoying. It was quite amusing. What sort of worries me about it looking back is like maybe I maybe I looked smug about it. You know, maybe I would have come across as like kind of oh you people bothering me. You know, yeah. which is which is not. It's funny that you you look back with distance on your own life and you think about what was the what was the impression I would have given and maybe I just maybe I just gave the, the impression as like this this complete fucking princeling who was like why are these <laughs> why are these police bothering me when literally they're here to save my life you know um, but I, I don't know and when, and when did the dreadlocks get cut off Oh they went when I was about twenty yeah I don't know early twenties I um I, after I graduated I went backpacking obviously um, mm. in um, <laughs> India obviously. For oh. about a year, and then I came back, and I needed to get a job, and so I chopped my hair off. Yeah. When you
0: went to India for a year, did you leave a note for your parents saying "Pizza's in the fridge"? <laughs> Gone to India.
1: I mean, I mean, you joke, but but more or less. um I mean, there was a there was a very. It was the it was the flip side of the kind of like you were allowed to go places and be away, and the sort of family obligations didn't work like that. It was fine, you know. So I did I wouldn't say it was quite abandonment, but it was. Um, yeah, it wasn't far off, maybe. So we've got a great
0: opening scene. There's so much colour in in, in in what you've just described there in terms of how you looked and your style, in your fashion sense. So that leads us to this question. And I don't know if that informs this the answer to this question. Who's going to be cast in the
1: lead, Hugo? Who is Hugo going to be Hugo? Well, it's really difficult, this. because I mean, partly because, look, we're talking about the sort of era of me being, what, 15 through 19 i mean certainly nothing of has happened since i since i hit adulthood so so we can leave out all that shit uh but so you need someone i mean obviously like ideally i'd like it to be zach braff right but i'd never never seen that coming but scottish 30 years ago now i mean he's, he's a man of range i'm not going. i'm not denying <laughs> that i mean the, 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 the zach braff i guess it's the it's the, the jewish side of things that we haven't even got into maybe we'll get onto that later yeah but um and, the, and I suppose in mannerism terms, there's there's, a, there's, there's stuff there. But you, look, he's the wrong age and from the wrong place and in the wrong part of the world. We're not going to get you Zach Graff, Toby. We're not going to get him. We're certainly not going to get him 30 years ago because of the passage of time.
0: Well, I mean, you could I mean, we we sometimes mention this in on the podcast. You could obviously go down the um the Irishman route of that sort of uncanny valley of of, of de-aging
1: actors, which That's, to it's me kind of, it's, look, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. So weird. You know? Who's looks who's playing weird. Hugo Rifkin as a 16-year-old? Oh, Zach Braff in a lot of makeup. What you although <laughs> I would I would like to see what that looked like.
0: I won't, <laughs> won't, won't won't lie, just to see what that experiment would look like. But also you can't just get people playing people uh you know of an age and they're meant to be younger that happens all the time you know i instantly think of like you know in greece those guys playing the t-birds i mean all of those guys have a mortgage and three children and they're meant to be like 17 18 year olds yeah Um, but at least least they're only 20 they're not 50
1: or however however (laughs) old he is you know i mean uh, it could be an experimental piece. Maybe there's someone from skins who could do it. even skins was 10 years ago now. I honestly don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not up to speed on my, on my, on my male Scottish 16 year old Jewish actors <clears throat> I'm afraid. What, <laughs> okay, let's say Zach Braff. let's say Zach Braff Let's go and, with you him. Know, that's cool. Apart, yeah. from,
0: apart from the fact you know you say that, that you, you share Jewish heritage? Yeah what is it about Zach Braff as an actor? What the, 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 the qualities which he have which
1: feel that kind of best represent you? I like his distance from any circumstance he's in. Uh, I mean, I mean, genuinely, I like the way he... he um, I'm a big fan of his films. I know it's meant to be a big sort of red flag for a man if he likes Garden State for some reason. But I don't really understand. Although I haven't seen it for about 15 years, so maybe there are reasons I'll mm. watch it again. And if anything really bad happens in there, then sorry. But um, mm. I remember loving it when I saw it and some other of his films as well. And also when he was in Scrubs. And I like the combination of humour, but also the way he never quite inhabits the circumstances he's in they're always happening to him
0: oh i see okay uh, when i when you were speaking now i was thinking more along the lines of that there's all like i was think i was inferring that he kind of somehow is breaking the fourth wall all the time like he he himself is you know is kind of aware that he is a fiction or you know, the person yeah, he's playing do you, do you know what i mean
1: yeah i mean I, I guess it's the same i didn't mean that specifically i guess it's the same kind of thing it's an awareness of, he's aware of the absurdity of his circumstances all the time and i'm um, <laughs> And I suppose in his case, the absurdity of the circumstances are that he's in a film. But still, it's a similar, it's, it's thematically similar, maybe. But I just, I well, don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of regretting this because I'd imagine his his 1990s Edinburgh accent probably isn't up to much, you know.
0: I mean, there have been worse Scottish accents, surely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've probably had worse Scottish accents at times. than <laughs> Zach
0: Brackwood, yeah. Again, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it out. If Kevin Costner can be Robin Hood, right? <laughs> if, if Robin Hood could be Californian, there's yep. no way that you can't be Californian. There's no way that Hugo Rifkin can't be Californian. Well, you know I mean? In a way, this whole story
1: is better if you move it to America, right? <laughs> I mean, it is. It is. because you Because everything happens on a much, much bigger canvas. You know, a, okay. like a, a senator's son is so much more interesting than just an MP's son, you know? Is it, it? though? I Why is so. that? I don't know. It's bigger. It's huger. It's more preposterous. There's more um, delineation between sort of uh, you know youth culture and adult culture. Basically, I'm hoping this gets bought by America afterwards. It's, it's, a, it's okay. a little it's a little British indie film, but if it gets yeah. bought by America and made on a bigger budget, then um, then I still don't know who would play me. But he could be more American. That would be fine.
0: Okay. Well, I've i just i just Googled for Edinburghs in America, and there is an Edinburgh in Indiana, which um, which has a as of the 2010 state census has a population of 4,480. So. You know, it's it's a small town story. It's becoming a small town America story that feasibly works. I just I I think it's a shame to move it from the Edinburgh to Edinburgh, Indiana. So, I mean, it is. Let's
1: uh, let's stick in Scotland. Let's stick in Scotland. I I think, look, I think maybe we can sell it on Zach Braff. Yeah. You know, because he's a big name. Yes. But actually further down the line, maybe we're going to have to cast around and do a bit better. Well, he he could you know he could be the
0: old player manager because he 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 directs now you know I think he's directed at least one episode of Ted Lasso so he could be like the 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 the, the lead and director. Oh, hang on, uh, no, I've just got this.
1: Zach Braff can play my dad. That I mean, works. there's even there's even a bit of a physical similarity there. That's fine. <laughs> That's great. So we're we, we're stuck for a lead still, but um, but it's
0: still it's big name casting. I, I love the fact. So Malcolm Rifkin, played by Zac Braff. I mean, that is to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 cool with that. I'm really, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, I'm into it. I didn't see it coming. No, I no, did not, not see Not at all. <laughs> <not enough. laughs> so we, we haven't quite got the lead yet. Maybe that will come in he's, time. But he's, he's an, he's, an unknown.
1: This is going to be. This is, this is, this unknown. is the job that makes him. This is great. A, a local, so it's a local Edinburgh Posh. lad. Kid from Morningside Yes <laughs> Very
0: selective casting yep. process Got mm-hmm. you Right fine So what genre Would this film be then And what sort of budget Are we looking at Are we You, you say You know You just said about bit about it Being like a British indie
1: film Do mm-hmm. you want it Do you want it to be Like a British indie film I want it to look Like a British indie film But mm. if they want to get If they want to give me A lot more money That's fine I mean Always open to yeah. investment Mm-hmm why do, you, why,
0: do you, why do you want to look like a British indie film? What, what, what do you like about British independent cinema and the,
1: some of the films it produces? Well, because, I mean, the, the circumstances of the film, there's a lot of streets and, and, mm. and buses and sleeping on sofas and, you know, sort of being stoned in barns and things. And, um, <laughs> as not, not the suburb, you know, actual barns. <laughs> and, um, and I just don't think that really works as a sort of Conair-type high concept, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Maybe, maybe I haven't got the video you know i want I'm wanting a kind of sort of with nail and eye aesthetic here
0: oh okay and um, with of course again you come back to the empties you know you've got you, you you've got the house to yourself. Mm-hmm. And a, isn't there actually, because you, know, you, you mentioned Zach Graff and you mentioned Garden State, and the, there's a character in Garden State who becomes a multimillionaire because he sells yes. a patent for Silent Velcro. Silent
1: Velcro, of course. Which yes. I
0: thought was a great concept, which no, doesn't exist in real life. And I was kind of always been baffled by that. But he has a massive house that's empty. Yes. And, that, and, and, that, and, and, and there was a kind of unreality to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, then, and, I, and that with Nell and I think, kind of plays into that, even though obviously he's immensely rich.
1: Yes. No, definitely. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a sort of crumbling massive houses are a big part of this story. Nice. Yeah. That, that aesthetic is definitely there. Yes. Was Chevening on its uppers a bit? Was it, was, was there's a oh, bit no, of work? Chevening Chie- was, Chevening was quite different. Chevening was, uh, Chevening had a maze, and the maze actually was looking a bit, a bit shabby to be honest. <laughs> I, was there. Uh, I have since probably seen better mazes. There were, there were holes in it. You could cheat. It was a, it was a fiasco, but um but no the house was was still was still pretty posh then although there were some weird wings and stuff but no i mean like some of the people i knew when i was at school there was a lot of there was a lot of crumbling poshness going on right and
0: w- and were they were they quasi aristocratic families or aristocratic families where the
1: upkeep of the home was starting to overtake whatever money they had and yeah, exactly and- that exactly it had all made sense 100 years earlier when their great grandfather had been a governor in burma and now it was like no one had ever had a job or knew how to have a job and there was a wing house that you, could, you hadn't been able to go to for 20 years kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of that stuff going on.
0: And also, uh, you know, Edinburgh's got that beautiful stone as well. So would you set it in a particular time of year? Would it be in the winter or would it be in the, in the, in the summer? Because summer in Edinburgh is beautiful. It can be absolutely yeah. glorious.
1: That's interesting because you kind of want... I mean, the problem if you're setting it in winter is you've got, what, an hour and a half of filming time a day? Something like that. <laughs> not, certainly not much more. I mean, I'm, my childhood memories are generally quite cold uh, because of that. But then there is that kind of—I mean, the thing I still love about being in Scotland. Not, I mean, not just Edinburgh, but even north of Edinburgh is the way it sort of never gets dark. And you know, June is June's just amazing. You know, yeah. and, you can, and the pubs never close, and you're, it's one o'clock in the morning, and there's still kind of light in the sky, and you're up a mountain. And it's just sort of fantastic. Um, so I, I think it would be a mistake not to seize on the Scottish summer times.
0: Oh, you meant you mentioned that your memories of, of Scotland from youth are being cold. Is that is that I find that really interesting? The fact that you you know that's that's what you associate a childhood with, like just, just with kind of being cold. Is that is that just because of the, the 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 weather or just the houses, like you say, or being subjected to it? Were you basically pushed outside at school into the into the freezing cold by by housemasters and whatnot, and told to get on with it?
1: So my school had no heating.
0: Um, oh the board, wow! The boarding
1: school had no heating because <laughs> well because it was mental, but also because it was a uh, it had. Oh, yeah, you know, you replay this in your mind. You go, this was just a trick to save money, wasn't it? But it, it had this culture of um that you were raised to be like a Spartan, you know, the Spartan to oh be tough, God. right? Right, So, yeah. the, So, so the, the dormitories had no heating. Uh, so at night, it was very, very cold. You could leave a glass of water on the windowsill and it would freeze over in the dormitory uh, where you were sleeping. Um, and there was a lot of rugby and stuff. And it was always... right. Very cold. It was just cold. It was. I mean, it was. It was fine. It was just cold. You just wear a lot of jumpers. It's cold. I. I,
0: lo- I love the way you said the word rugby there. I, there wasn't a tone in which I detected an awful lot of love.
1: <laughs> I did quite like rugby sometimes. I was quite big when I was about twelve at my first school, and I played a lot of rugby then. And then I just sort of more or less stopped growing. Uh, <laughs> um, at the same time as I started smoking, and I've often wondered if those were linked in any way. But um, and so by the time I was like. 15 16 uh, I was not a I was not a natural rugby player let's just say I was very I was very thin uh, I was, I, I, was, I was very thin and quite small and just 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 not that into it
0: you sound I mean ripe for grunge anti-sport yes. smoking is just absolutely perfect you mentioned about being Spartan I mean I'm assuming the school m- knew that the Spartans were essentially homicidal eugenicists and they, that's what they were looking to, to, to cultivate.
1: Hell yes. I mean, I mean, completely, <laughs> like totally, of course they were, you know, there was like, <laughs> I mean, this was, this was a culture designed to to teach people to, like I said before, to go off and be the next governor of Burma, right. Or a right. foot soldier for the governor of Burma, not a foot soldier, obviously an officer, what am I saying? <laughs> um, and yes, this had sort of become relatively absurd by 1992, but <laughs> was, um, because there wasn't much call for that kind of thing, but it really was the culture. It was deliberately brutal and brutalizing. Um, and you were—it was meant to toughen you up in a way that makes very little sense unless you're going to go off and join the army, which only a few people did. But it, re- it really was, yeah, it really was the mentality.
0: And how did you like? How did you respond to that? There are some people who go to schools, I guess, like that, and they love it. That that kind of speaks to their their character, or yeah. maybe what is expected of them, whether that's parental influence or the the, the the teachers or whatever. But there are others who don't, and they hate it, and they want to rebel and push against it, although they
1: despise it. Where where did you fall? Somewhere between the two. I mean, I wasn't um, very well behaved at school. I started smoking when I was very young. It was quite a drinky. It wasn't very druggy, but it was a bit druggy. But then I quite liked having that kind of um, authoritarian thing to push against. It was it was weird authoritarian because it was um again in ways that in ways that in fact right now put my school currently at the part of the scottish child abuse inquiry uh, <laughs> because of bullying allegations in the 1990s when indeed oh, it was there um, uh, and that's literally going on at the moment but all the punishment was generally handed down to the the senior years so if you got in trouble at school you'd get up the next morning and have to go on a run taken by the first 15 and you know you'd be you'd be doing pre- it was on the coast in muselbrose you'd be doing press ups in the sea until the first person was sick was was generally the the routine um, really? Oh yeah, 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 totally. Um, you know, and there was no, there was no adult authority at all. Even, even at meals, the only time there were adults there at meals was at lunchtime. Breakfast and tea it was called tea. Supper were just run by by prefects. To the extent they were at all, and the food fights were epic. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, proper. I have. I was telling my kids about this the other day because I'm a, a bad parent. Uh, but um, I have this really, really strong memory of sitting there at a table at tea one evening and talking to someone and as I was talking to them this apple came out of nowhere and hit this jug of milk and it went flying all over this girl and she stood up and like in like in the, Ed, the Edvard Munch painting stood up went like that and screamed <laughs> screamed and screamed and screamed and as she was screaming these two guys who were sitting next to her these two sick formers in the rugby team stood up heaved over the table (gasps) and started throwing things at wherever it had come from and the whole place just sort of erupted into absolute absolute chaos that sort of thing would happen about once a term like the like the uh the pie fight in blazing saddles where it just goes (laughs) completely insane that would happen and then there'd be there'd be like sort of uh you know repercussions and the whole school would get sent on a massive long run and they would uh, (laughs) this has to change and then the staff would come into supper for the next fortnight and then it would just begin to slide back it was chaos it was a madhouse did the kind of holy grail ever take place
0: did you ever see a fork flying through the air with a sausage attached
1: to it a la grain chill uh i mean not not that i can remember but i must have done i must have done everything everything flew somewhere i've seen i've, I've seen teapots fly toby i've seen it all
0: I mean, it kind of. It, I mean, it's. It does sound a little Lord of the Flies, just leaving. It was
1: extremely Lord of the Flies, yeah.
0: And I like. And I'm assuming that was the kind of the, that was the system which was designed in order so that it was like you say, it was sort of peer reviewed um, yeah. authority, right? That was the teachers were basically disassociating themselves in some way from that in order to kind of create a hierarchy of age
1: yeah. and. Yes, I mean, and I guess it's sort of. You've got, to, you've got to phrase this very, very carefully and, and and finish the end of the sentence and not take one quote out of this, <laughs> one quote out of context. I guess it worked when they could still beat people, right? <laughs> In that when that could still happen, I'm not saying that was a good thing and it was ever a good thing, but yeah. when that could still happen, the system would have functioned because there would have been real jeopardy to poor behaviour because you'd get literally beaten up for it, right? right. And But that had... That had I was going to say that was long gone. It wasn't long gone. It was about five years gone by the time I was there. Uh, But yet the same sort of cultures were in place just without that ultimate sanction. So it was beginning a slide into absolute degeneracy, I would say. Yeah. Wow.
0: Mm. I mean, the next question asks, you know, which parts of your life would definitely have to be in the film (laughs) And why? But I mean, you have to have an epic food fight in there, surely. You talk about absurdism, um, like that feels like it absolutely has to be in there.
1: But like, so which parts of your life would definitely have to be in? I didn't write the headline though. Well, I mean, you're right. There's got to be the food fight. I have a very clear image of what it looks like when someone gets hit right in the back of the head by an apple while they're while they're running. (laughs) While they're running. While they're running. While they're running away. Head back of the head. (laughs) Apple. Ooh. You know. um, Yeah. So that 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 could be. Maybe that's the maybe that's the, the picture on the front. Back. It's, it's, um, do you, yeah. do you know
0: what? Sorry to interrupt you. Do you know what the, the the image I had in my mind there immediately was? Of course, Willem Dafoe in platoon, just arms race to heaven, to heaven, maybe with a kind of like a, a a pink lady smeared at the back of the head or, a...
1: yeah, that could, that could, work. I mean, I guess we're getting away slightly from the from the top of that. I'm not sure if that fits the title, anyway. Uh, so that, that would be in there. I mean, there's the, there's the stuff about, um, uh, a lot of the political stuff is going to be in there, I suppose. I had a, uh, I had breakfast with Margaret Thatcher when I was 12. Huh? Yeah. Um, not just me and her, that would've been fucking weird. Um, she was visiting Scotland for some reason and she was staying in the Secretary of State for Scotland's official residence. And that was at the time my dad. And so we went to stay there that night because we because we lived in Edinburgh, we didn't live there, obviously. She didn't, he didn't live in his, his residence. And we had breakfast with her the following morning, which is the thing I remember because we've got a photo of it. She was very, very awkward but I'm sure I could, she, she, she was very she was. You know, weird, Weirdly enough, not, not really the sort of person who was at her most comfortable with 12 year old boys. Um, <laughs> but um, I can't remember that much about it, but I'm, I'm sure I could write that up into a funny scene. I reckon somehow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Mm. What would,
1: so hang on. So you don't really re- remember much. You don't remember like
0: what she spoke about or, 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 did she have a, did she have a
1: perfume? I can remember her being like, I can remember her being uncomfortable. Because she just, she did not know how to engage with a small child at all. Uh, and obviously felt, oh she obviously wanted to be polite and felt she ought to. And she talked, that's right. She talked about how she'd been to the, she decided I must be into football. I wasn't, but still. Uh, and so she talked about how she'd been. She said she'd been to the Scottish Cup final at Ibrox. And I said, the Scottish Cup final is at Hampden. And that was awkward. Um, <laughs> Correcting Margaret Thatcher on yep, her Scottish football knowledge. I mean, that's that's all I can remember about that that interaction. But there's got to be there's got to be some legs in it, right? Huge, huge amount. I'm like, you know, she did only sleep four
0: hours a night. So did she, did she? Did she? Did you have breakfast really, really early, like in the middle of
1: the night, or did she? <laughs> did she? And or did she look tired? I mean, so probably what happened is maybe she wasn't there when I went to bed, and she turned up in the night. But what I'd like to think. Is that I've gone to bed and I heard her sort of skulking around. <laughs> <in his head. laughs> She's here! <laughs> yeah. She's here! You know, you know, like wandering in and her in a bathroom and things like that would have been, um, is, yeah, is what, what what definitely should have happened, yeah. Um, what do you hmm. um, what what do you make?
0: Obviously, you know, this has definitely got to go in. Breakfast with Thatcher, twelve-year-old yep. boy having breakfast with Thatcher. Absolutely, that is just like again absurdism. But like with the crown, which I'm, you yes. know, I'm sure you've seen. What did you make of? Gillian Anderson's portrayal of her, given your
1: insider knowledge? oh, All wrong, I thought. She was too small, uh, Gillian Anderson, and too slight and not imposing. And not from, this is certainly not me speaking personally, but there's a big thing among Tories, like a lot of Tories fancied Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Particularly gay Tories fancied Margaret Thatcher, which takes you into whole sorts of territory I don't even (laughs) want to think about. But um, but but they did. You know, it it comes out in uh, uh, Alan Hollinghurst, *The Line of Beauty*. You know, there's a real Thatcher gay icon thing going on. And uh, in fact, Damien Barb wrote it in his book *Maggie and Me* as well. You know, it was it it was definitely it was a it's an unexamined thing, but it's definitely a thing. And she didn't have that. She didn't uh, Gillian Anderson. She didn't have that sort of statuesque, intimidating thing she was too slight and small. It's a bit weird to say Gillian Anderson wasn't hot enough to play Margaret Thatcher. I see that. That goes in all kinds of terrible directions. But I know I wasn't I, I didn't think it was quite right. Did it sound cuz I thought, you know, the effort
0: at the at the vocal delivery mm. was was interesting. Like it, it, it may be even impressive like trying to get yeah, those definitely. trying to get those clipped tones. It didn't entirely work for me. I did not I don't I didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that there were these times where she exhibited warmth, I guess is what
1: I'm saying. <laughs> um yeah, but I that- certainly never saw him yeah but she, she was just yeah. the wrong kind of it's like what's her name um the one with the really deep voice in the golden girls thatcher was that kind of person she wasn't a Gillian anderson type person oh was it b was it b arthur you yes played? i think it was yes it was yes think b so. arthur. yeah
0: yeah she had that kind of quality did she that kind of imposing kind of
1: yes i don't know if she was but she came across as big you know mm. that
0: isn't did your dad ever like speak about being intimidated by her
1: no, I mean they didn't. They didn't get on very well. They clashed quite a lot. I think she didn't quite understand him because I mean, he was very young when he was. Um, he was much younger than I am now when he was in her cabinet. Really? And, um, yeah. No, no. No. Well, he was. Uh, when would this have been? It would have been '86. He'd have been 40 uh, when he went into her cabinet, and there was a lot of different. It was uh, his politics then were much more Scottish-dominated and there was a lot of scotland england clashing going on and he wasn't quite a, on the wet side of the party but he was much closer to it than um so yeah so they 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 clashed quite a bit yeah wow yeah
0: and so so breakfast with thatcher is an absolute yeah, that's it. That's, a, that's a heartbeat that's that's absolutely yeah. there what 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 other moments would, would would you like to see in there that you could either obviously extrapolate from
1: uh,
0: half remembered moments or like mm. other things that have happened or are, are there other things that happen
1: the only one in there. I mean, the only other sort of, if, I don't know, depends how political we're going, The only other big political one, which it might, it might be too late for the scope of this film. I'm not quite sure. This is when I was about. Um, after I'd come back from travelling in India, mm. I was temping in London. I was basically trying to be a, a freelance journalist, but it wasn't working at all. Um, and I was so I was temping for a proofreading company doing bank leaflets. It was very miserable, and I didn't yet have enough money to rent anywhere so I was sitting my dad had a flat in London then a one-bed flat and I was sleeping on his sofa and okay. the job was uh like hard it was long long days because this company I was working for had got this contract to I don't know do a million leaflets <laughs> in Midland Bank by the middle of next week and half of them were in Welsh and I don't obviously I don't speak Welsh and proofreading in Welsh when you don't speak Welsh it doesn't it's, it's not really what your Cambridge degree is for Toby let's just say that and um and I can remember coming back home like, later than it should have been because I'd been stuck there for ages because they were only paying £6 an hour and I was really trying to raise some money and really just wanting to go to bed and coming into the flat and going into the, the, the only room that wasn't his bedroom that had the sofa in it where I was going to go to bed. And I couldn't because Ken Clark was on it drinking whiskey. Um, <laughs> and I had to, I was like, right, okay. And I literally went and slept in the kitchen face down on the table. No. While, while, while my dad and Ken Clark sat on my bed drinking whiskey. Not that it was a bed at that point, it was a sofa. You're joking? Yeah. Nope. That's you slept on nasty. a table. I mean, not for not all night. Just um, you know, only only until about midnight or something, <laughs> you know, because um, because I was like, well, I'm not going to go and get into my dad's bed because that's weird, and um, <laughs> and, uh, and and there's only three rooms in this place. And I don't want to go out again. And and Ken Clark sitting on my bed drinking whiskey, and you know, so yeah, they, I think, think they're probably they're probably smoking cigars as well. So it was not it was um it was not. I think I probably found a flat not long after that. Did he, did he not offer you a a, a dram? Did he not? No, he, no, I mean, I I was definitely welcome to stay and, you know, but it was also like, I just, you know, when you've got someone around in your flat and you just want them to, to go away so you can go to bed. (laughs) It was like that, but it wasn't my flat. It was my dad's flat. (laughs) Yeah. And and may you know what? I sort of think I have have to ask him actually. I mean, I get on very well with my dad, but I'll have to ask him. Maybe he was like, come on, the kid's been staying in my flat for like three months now. (laughs) So I'll, I'll get Ken round, and we'll um we'll we'll see what we can do. You know, maybe that was maybe that's what was going on. You know, but it, it I, worked anyway. I I I just love the idea, like
0: you say about student you know student living, and there is often you know there's parties um where someone out you know is there right at the very end, and and is like preventing people from going to sleep. And in this situation, yeah. it's Ken Clark yeah. who is who is like
1: he was, was bed blocking. Yeah, literally, literally. Yeah, I'm mean, going to say, could you, could you stand up, Ken? Well, I just pull out, some, <laughs> you know yeah it wasn't going to happen so that should you, probably go in that's yeah. a great one definitely do you think do you think if you had
0: asked him to and stood up and pulled the bed out and got into bed they, he still would have sat on the
1: bed drinking whiskey with your dad well it was quite a small room it was a very small flat because this would have been this would have been just after my dad left government when he suddenly had to do things like buy his own flats and um <laughs> <laughs> and so it was it was very small so if i had pulled the bed out there wouldn't have been any space in the room that wasn't the bed so then I would have been right. in bed with Ken Clark, and um, I just don't think that would have been right, Toby.
0: Again, what a film title, in bed yeah. with Ken Clark. I mean, again, and my I mean, dad, I... it
1: would be, it would be all three of us <laughs> in the bed. Obviously, it just wasn't how I, it wasn't how I saw my future.
0: <laughs> I just before we go on to the next uh, next question, I just I, I just wondered, um, you sort of talk we we've talked about kind of your, your, your the fact that you were made very aware from a young age about who your dad was and you know which party he belonged to. Mm. What then? did it mean to you when, in 1997 when you saw the, the on election night, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess, you were you a student then? And, yeah, and yeah. W- I, was when...
1: uh, I, I was a student. I was in my second year at Cambridge. No one I knew was a Tory. That's not true. I had one friend who was a Tory. He stopped being a Tory now. Uh, I had one friend who was a Tory, <laughs> uh, but no one I knew was because the stoner dreadlock fraternity just didn't really lend itself that way, although I bet their dads did, and you think about it. But anyway... Um, The week before I went and got, uh, I went to my, um, (laughs) funny, we must've had a sense. We knew what was going to happen, obviously. I went to the flat that my dad lived in in London then, which was uh, was a house in Carlton Gardens, the Foreign Secretary's London residence. And and I picked up a telly (laughs) because they had had a little telly they brought down from Edinburgh. And I must've known that we were emptying out the flat. And I took the telly back to Cambridge anyway. And I had a bunch of friends in my room for that election night. And it was a really, really weird experience sitting there, literally watching my dad lose his job on the telly. And it wasn't just him losing his job. It was like my whole life he'd been an MP and now he wasn't an MP. You know, I yeah. been, I'd been 20 years old uh, and, um, and I hadn't, I hadn't known anything else. And literally watching that happening, surrounded by all my closest friends who were cheering, you know, it was, was quite, was quite weird. It wasn't particularly upsetting because it was like, that was just what, that's what life was like. That's what it was. Yeah. So those are the moments
0: we've definitely got to have in the film. Right. Okay. Which are the moments that you want that you want on the cutting room floor? What isn't making it into the biopic?
1: Well, that's hard. <laughs> so, um, my friend Catelyn Moran has this thing that there are no that basically everything you experience is either a good experience or an anecdote. Everything <laughs> fits into everything fits into that category. And yeah. I guess in a film you kind of want you want both of those. So that so that's kind of hard. As I said, I don't think much of note, at least for this film, has happened to me since the age of mm, twenty five. Right? <laughs> that's important. There's a whole section. So I I once wrote I once wrote I we talked before about having meetings with people about film scripts. Mm. Um I once wrote a film script not that long ago, uh, less than 10 years ago, uh that was very autobiographical about the time I was a teenager and I went and worked on a pig farm in Cornwall. Um <laughs> so that I'd like that I'm gonna keep out. Okay. Just in case I don't yep. have a chance to use it elsewhere. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow that. Blow that in this the pig the, the pig farming is safe, Hugo. You've you yeah. banked that. Yeah, it's the the pig farm. It's a kind of sort of gone on a holiday by mistake, pig farming experience. Everyone's had right. it. Um, <laughs> uh, so that I'd like to keep separate. There's the whole other side of my childhood and life, the, the experience of growing up Jewish in Scotland in the 80s and 90s was going to say was very unusual, even more unusual now. There's basically no Jews left in Scotland. But that was a big part of my childhood, at least as weird as the Tory thing, because no one else was Jewish either in Edinburgh, uh, almost. I don't think that has place in this film. I think that, that, that becomes a bit of a two-headed monster we try and bring that in as well. Mm. So so, so while well, there's a lot of scope there, the weirdness of being Jewish in Scotland in the 1990s, I don't think any of that really gets in.
0: Why was it weird to be Jewish in Scotland in the 90s?
1: Well, no no one else was. <laughs> this, boarding okay. school, this boarding school I went to, I was literally the only Jewish person there. Literally the right. only Jewish person there, which was quite weird. There was also the fact that my family is a sort of a Jewish family from Edinburgh of as much as anyone is of, of long-standing. My great-grandfather came over from Lithuania in 1899. Yeah, 1899, I think it would be. That's my dad's my mum's side of the family, Holocaust survivors. My, my dad's mm. side of the family, survivors of completely different sorts of slaughter of the Jews in, in a wholly different part of Europe um, yeah. a bit quite a long time earlier. So they came over then. And so what that meant is that the synagogue we went to, the community there, was very much my family hinterland, but my dad's family hinterland as well. So we'd go to the when we'd go to the synagogue he'd just be little malcolm who'd gone off and done good things and there'd be all these sort of old glowering men you know really 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 patronizing him so there's there's good stuff there but i just don't i just don't think it worked for this film
0: was it did did you and uh, did you feel quite lonely then if you had this kind of sense of community when you were with your parents going to synagogue if you were then at uh, school rather and you were the only jewish guy
1: there Did, did, did did
0: did that exacerbate your loneliness not really because it was
1: um well, I mean, everyone thinks this about themselves because everyone thinks they're special. But I also think in most environments I'd ever been in until I was an adult and now I've built my own environment, I have always been a bit of a freak, right? And I was a freak. I was a freak at school. Well, I was a freak in, I was a freak in the synagogue in, in, in because we weren't very religious and my dad was the MP. And then I was a freak at my boarding school because, well, for sort of literally the same reasons, but the other way around, you know, and it's... um. But so that sort of made it familiar in a way. It was quite weird being the only Jewish kid at school, particularly at first. I'm not going to say that wasn't weird because it was also it was the sort of culture where people made quite a lot of Jewish jokes, you know, um, Um, in a kind of just just in a good old fashioned racist kind of way. (laughs) Um, But um, and that was quite jarring to start with. But then you you know it's just I didn't really know any better, I suppose. Did did, did, that, did that
0: did that carry on throughout schooling, or did that stop at any point, or did it did it was that just a constant? Oh no,
1: it. it I mean, they, they didn't make them to me. It wasn't about me being oh. Jewish. It was, you know, it was, the fact that I was Jewish was kind of. I don't think anyone. Don't think in my time at school, I was ever personally anti-Semitically abused. I'm not sure I was. I'm not sure I've ever been anti-Semitically abused until until the internet. Right. I, I must be forgetting something. But no, just the 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 slang of somebody being Jewish for being tight with money and things like that was just right. sort of ubiquitous in the culture, which is quite weird when you're Jewish and nobody else is. But, yeah. um, but not personal.
0: And and just just before we move on, i just you said about um certain parts, it's nothing interesting has happened to you since you were 25. You you you, you <laughs> were you were you were a diary writer, which like you say yes. involves going to parties. That's true. Um so that's gotta have some moments, surely, or was it exhausting? Cause I I I'm I have spoken to at least one diary writer and you're meant to be out every night and then filing copy the same night, basically.
1: Yeah. It sounds exhausting. I hated it. I hated being a diary writer. It was weird. that I even became, I was basically, I was a sort of jobbing freelance features writer for the times and for the Herald in Glasgow and for the evening standard. And during that time I wrote a novel called overexposure, which was published right. by Canongate and which is the story of a diary writer. <gasps> which uh, a diary writer on a london newspaper which i wrote because i'd i'd worked for a bit on a this gossip news my first job in journalism was for this gossip news website called people news which i got because my flatmate was temping next door and gave them my cv basically and i don't have experience so, and they were going to pay more than the proofreading the midland bank leaflets like i mentioned yes. before and so i went to work there and it was a lot of fun and while i was doing that oh basically what that was was just sort of it was secondhand showbiz writing. You'd basically fill out all the papers and all the diaries and all that kind of stuff. And while yep. I was there, I had this idea to write a kind of, yeah, a kind of detective story about a, a gossip diarist. I guess very much in the vein of Brace and Ellis and Martin Amos. So they're very much informed by both those styles, I would say, as indeed did the reviewers. And, um, <laughs> and so I wrote that and it got published. But about a month before it got published, inexplicably, I became the Times diary writer. Um, but I'd already written the book. I'd already, the book was already with publishers when I got the job. I got the job just because I, I was a features writer and they wanted somebody who could write the column. And, um, and it was a bit of an experiment. And so it looked a lot like I'd been doing that job for about three months and already written a novel about it. But, um, <laughs> but actually it was sort of complete coincidence. And so a lot of my memories of that time, I, they were a bit confused about whether I actually experienced them or made them up for a novel. <laughs> um, and I honestly couldn't say but I wasn't very good at it. I didn't like going to parties and speaking to people. Uh, I didn't enjoy being in an environment where you're only there under sufferance to work and make people have conversations they didn't want to have. Really, yeah. I really didn't didn't really like it when you know Vernon Kay looks down his nose at you and Jude Law tells you to fuck off. It just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my happy place. But nonetheless, I did it for I think six years. <laughs> um, <gasps> uh, but largely by sending other people to go to the parties instead. <laughs> yeah, I was too old as well. I was I, mean, I wasn't that old, but I was 30-ish, thereabouts, or oh, nearly 30 anyway. And yeah. um, and really you want to be it's a job you I think if you do that job you do that job when you're single in your early 20s you go out every night you take your friends you have an amazing time you don't mind when Jude Law tells you to fuck off um because it just doesn't bother you and and it could be more fun whereas I am um, yeah I just I sent other people to the parties and I was a sort of overlord and man- <laughs> managed it from afar it was fine but I didn't I didn't like it very much so we know what's not going in the film but yeah what are the influences
0: on... I didn't write the headline, though, Hugo. What are the influences? And are there influences you want it on this film from TV or literature or film um, or comics?
1: We talked about it earlier, but I guess there's a lot of... Uh, Alan Hollinghurst, Line of Beauty. Line of Beauty, is there's a lot of similarity there. But you don't want to overplay that because that's a much, much better story than my story. Because, I mean, <laughs> there's, nothing happens in my story. It's just a person, you know? That story, at least it's about, you know, sort of being gay in the 80s. I was just a person. And I guess there's a bit of Patrick Melrose... Right. But 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 then, you know, I didn't really have enough of a drug habit. So that doesn't I don't know. Um, But these are these are the tonal things, I would say, in terms of some of the Scottish stuff. I guess there's quite a lot of Ian Banks in there. There's a lot of Ian Banks I read about his sort of rural Scotland that is horrifyingly familiar. Um, Go on. Well, just I mean, just in a kind of drunk teenagers in the middle of nowhere type way. Nothing particularly remarkable. So I guess there would, there would in, in almost everything I write about Scotland, there's a Big Ian Banks influence. I would say, so that's there. Yeah, but I, I can't think of, probably not any comics I can think of. Dennis the Menace hair, that's about it.
0: I mean, again, a great Scottish link, though. You know, DC Thompson <laughs> coming out of Dundee. So, well, quite. Yeah. You've got, you've got, you've got a lovely little touch there. Um, now this is going to be. I don't know if it's tricky mm. for you. What about the critics? Here you go. If the critics love it or hate it. How would that affect you in any future projects do you pay much attention to
1: critics i mean i'm not i'm generally unbothered by critics i do not do anything that they would ever care about uh but um <laughs> apart from obviously being one um i suppose when my novel came out the reviews were very the most annoying thing in the reviews came out because my, my novel was about a diarist everywhere got the diarist to review it which is annoying it's like no get uh, somebody who actually reads books to review it please <laughs> and the one the only thing i remember it was reviewed quite well generally but the one thing I remember was Guy Adams, I think writing in, in Independent, had talked about the fact, he said Rifkind writes about Brixton, where young people supposedly live in bedsits. And it just really annoyed me because it was like, the fuck do you mean supposedly? What is, what is this? <laughs> you know, I'm not pretending to live in, I don't know, very annoying. That's not really the point. I would want, it's very important to me that the critics love it. No, they have to love it. Because if they love it, I get to make the one about the Cornish pig farm. <gasps> and that's really what this is all about. So this is the vehicle for the Cornish pig farm... Uh, opus
0: absolutely yes is the is the cornish pig farm still on the i mean not the back burner because you don't want the pigs to be on the back burner because that's the back bacon burner
1: um <laughs> uh, no i mean i haven't I haven't looked at it in years but it was quite good like a lot of things i write it suffered for being it was quite funny and interesting but without any sort of real point <laughs> um, but um i guess maybe it could have a point as being the follow up to this film suddenly suddenly there's a point the
0: protagonist of i didn't write the headline though relocates to become a pig farmer in cornwall
1: absolutely um, with hilarious consequences or with devastating consequences a bit of both bit of both bit of both of these things learns a lot about pigs in the process and, useful uh, and other animals yes <laughs> I, mean, I, I know i can i know all kinds of we could have done a whole podcast about the difference between various <laughs> sorts of farmyard shit i know a lot about different kinds of farmyard shit you really yes which one do you want to know about Cow cow shit is fine. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let me just
0: test how much you know. Horse horse is less pleasant.
1: Uh, basically, your cow shit splats. It's got a lot. It's got a lot more grass in it. Don't know where the grass goes in horse shit. You rarely see it. Cow shit. It, it's very grassy based. It frisbees like a cow pat. It's very yeah. easy to shovel up. Horse shit is more hand grenadey. Yeah. And um, squelchy and generally unpleasant. The shit you want is goats because they kind of be- they bury it a bit like a cat. Little pellets, but they—they're they? very neat. They're not deliberately, but they do it in an area. They're just neat shitters. Um, not technically a farm animal, but nothing is worse than dog shit. Nothing is worse than dog shit. Carnivore shit is the worst. It's a bit like when you're building something. If you're making plaster, the way you, they used to use horse hair in plaster, you want some kind of roughage in there to hold it together. <laughs> yeah, and dogs—it's—it's it's a very protein-heavy diet. It's just. Um... <laughs> You know, this this is this is turning into a biopic, isn't it? <laughs> I,
0: I I'm just I'm really I, it is literally turning into a biopic, and I I'm just I'm so glad that we've gone down this, avenue, Because there is definitely <laughs> there's material here for the film for sure, and I love the fact that you have like
1: this knowledge, deep deep knowledge. And all pigs generally. I know a lot about pigs. Pigs are bastards, <laughs> horrible horrible animals. Really Why? Nasty. What have they done to you? They have tried to eat my bollocks, Toby. But what they do? <laughs> they um the worst pigs on this farm. They were the younger pigs. The young, well, there were a variety of types of pigs. These were the younger basic porkers. And I guess they had a reason to be upset because they were going to be eaten eventually. But they yeah. were like, the pigs get really big. These ones, are, these ones are only like kind of sheep-sized pigs, I guess. A bit lower, but the same kind of length. But so there was a gang of them that lived in this pen. And they'd work as a team. And they'd... they'd it'd, it'd, like, like that trick you play when you'd lie down behind someone's legs and then you push them from the front so they'd fall over. Right. Yeah. And they'd do that. They'd, One of them would arrange itself behind you. Then the others would rush you. And then you'd fall <laughs> over and you have to... And you'd have to fight them off with a shovel while they tried to eat your bollocks. It was really—they're really nasty animals. Yeah, the Vietnamese but, pigs were the nicest. They were very friendly.
0: I just love the sad. fact you've been bullied by pigs. Really bad. It's like a—it's it, like, like a farmyard version of Jurassic Park, where you don't need the Velociraptors.
1: <laughs> it's just just undone by pigs. Yeah, they were—they were the worst. There were also there's a kind of pig called an Iron Age pig, which is a very it's hard to describe. It's a sort of brownie pig. It just looks like a pig from the Iron Age, and that indeed is what it's called. Uh, it's got a sort of pointy snout, and there were four or five adolescent Iron Age pigs on this farm in this... It was this shed, <laughs> it was this shed with all these bolts on the door because they were quite lively. It was a bit like in um, in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels where Steve Martin pretends to be mad, the yeah. thing they keep him in with all the bolts on the door. <laughs> it was like that, but it was full of Iron Age pigs. And I, I was there with my mate Alex, and one of us would have to go into the middle of this room and sort of pitchfork out the hay well, these pigs went fucking mental and went around just like a wheel of death, like on motorbikes, screaming <laughs> as you threw out the hay desperately before they turned on you. And it was, um, yeah. And well, you, you have to bolt them in, otherwise the pigs would escape. And when pigs escape, I just all everything goes downhill from there. Yeah, but that's the film, and that's the next film. I'm, I'm so lucky. I can't, I cannot wait, I cannot wait for this to be the
0: vehicle to get to the <laughs> the pig bullying feature film. Now, yep. it, it's the premiere night, Hugo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the can. Films in the can. Um, everyone's very excited to
1: see it. Where would the premiere take place, and who's invited? Ooh, uh, I don't mind where it takes place. I guess it. I mean, it would make more sense if it took place in Edinburgh. But really, <laughs> it, well, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd have to travel and and all that. But I mean, who's invited? I think I'd probably want to just Meghan Markle. That shit. You know, there's no point. There's no point in inviting your real friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, wanna, yeah. you want You want George Clooney. You want um, Bill Gates. You want. You want all the people. You want all the people that you've made a film in order to impress. Bono. Bono can come. That's fine. Um, Obviously. I, I think I'd invite people I don't know, but want right. to. All my, big might... A-list types, you know. The, the, yeah, the, totally. the, 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 yeah, Yeah, yeah. My, my actual friends, I suppose they can sneak in if they want, as long as they don't sort of tell anyone how much of it is just made up. But it's not about Could, them. It's not their day. It's mine. It's my day. Could you not, you know, have a, a, you know, like you say, inviting these people you
0: don't know, these incredibly rich, wealthy, famous people. Do you not have like a, a Bezos... You know, hire. You know, maybe to unfurl a screen underneath the fourth bridge. You know, and you could beam the film onto the the the, the canvas from one of his super yachts. And so you're there in the you know Firth the fourth, watching the film on on a, on a on a giant screen that's plastered onto the side of the fourth road bridge. I mean, is that not is that possible? Is that is that too is that too
1: low key for you now? I'm not against it. I'm certainly not against <laughs> it. Um, I could stand for that. i spent a decent amount of time in the sea under the fourth road bridge. So I know, right. I, know I, I I I used to go canoeing around there, so I okay. know, and I, I wouldn't want to watch it from a canoe. That would be that would be bleak, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I could stand for that. Let's do that. Let's okay, let's hang do it. that. Let's, let's do it from a big screen lowered from the fourth road bridge. Yes, make it a big big event in the middle of the uh, uh, of the firth
0: of fourth. And then finally, who's not invited? Who isn't invited? Everyone you want to impress is invited. All the Hollywood
1: A lister types and the tech giants. But who's yeah. not coming? My kids. My kids aren't. Coming. <laughs> they can't. They can't know about any of this. <laughs> they can't know, they can't know about any of this. You know, I need to uh, I've got this horror. I guess a lot of writers I have this, I have this horror that one day my kids will actually read something I write. And they'll be like, what's this? Who are you? And so yeah, they're definitely not seeing how I behaved when I was only slightly older than they are now. None of that. What's the one what's the one thing you don't want them to find out about you? Hmm. I guess my uh, my personality. uh i don't know just general bad behavior of the sort that you don't want your kids to do i suppose but kids seem a lot smarter these days i don't know but i guess also the amount of freedom i had at the time because i have no no intention of giving my kids that kind of freedom (laughs) no chance why 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 allow them the pleasure yeah exactly i feel like i had a sort of i had a lucky escape turning into this (laughs) This 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 well balanced normal sane individual that I can at least know how to pretend to be, and I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to risk the chance of that not working a second time. Well, congratulations! There we have it.
0: I didn't write the headline though, featuring Guffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> a maroon bus in Edinburgh, a teenage boy left alone with a pizza in the fridge while his parents are in China, grunge clothing, smoking behind mazes, Zach Braff as Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Decaying homes, epic food fights, losing a bed to Ken Clark while he drinks some whiskey, and being bullied by pigs. Hugo Rifkind, congratulations on being greenlit. Thank you very much. I'll see you at the Oscars.